It seems to me that whenever in church a passage of scripture is read, it typically falls into one of two categories. See if this makes sense. Sometimes a person reads a passage in church and it's as if they have been reading your mail. It is the word you needed. Maybe a beloved pet was laid to rest, and that is gut-wrenching. Or maybe even more so, your grandmother passed away a couple of weeks ago, and you, and you sit in the pew and someone gets up and reads, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or the words of Jesus, let not your heart be troubled, I go to prepare a place for you. And it just feels like, oh my gosh, this is just for me. Then there are other times when the passage is read, and it might as well have been read directly from the Hebrew or Greek in which it was written, because it's just Greek to us, and it just goes over our head, and it means nothing whatsoever. Like in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he has this long section on what to do about meat sacrificed to idols. Seriously? I don't know anyone struggling with eating meat sacrificed to idols, and neither Costco nor Sam's Club sells idol meat. It's just, whew, right? In the Old Testament, there are instructions, long, laborious instructions about the curtain that was to be hung in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Really? Do I need that? It's only a few chapters after the passage that we read. But the passage that we read, to me it seems to fall somewhere in between. In between this totally relevant speaking to me and ah, doesn't have anything to do with me. We're not a Jewish synagogue. We're a Christian congregation. We're not under the law. We don't have to keep these things. That sounds like a burden. So it just seems like we could dismiss it. And yet... If the truth be told, we are desperate for rest and refueling and renewing. This past week marked the 30th anniversary of the World Wide Web. You remember, technology was going to give us more free time. When in reality, now you can check email on the beach. There goes Sabbath. It seems to me that... Besides our busy lives, there are some serious obstacles to any of us ever getting Sabbath rest, starting with the notion of calling it a commandment. You notice I kept saying the so-called commandments. There's another version in Deuteronomy, but the one we read in Exodus, we didn't read all ten, but this is how it starts. Then God spoke these words, not commandments, words. For that reason, scholars have often called this the Decalogue, the ten words, not commandments. In fact, our Jewish brothers and sisters will tell you, they don't think of them as commandments. They think of them as God's gifted instruction. Here's an analogy. Suppose, this isn't going to happen, by the way. Suppose your boss calls tonight and says, hey, guess what? I think you should take tomorrow off. It's not even going to count against your personal days away, but we've got it. Why don't you sleep in, uh, go for a walk, take a nap, read a good book, just 
just enjoy the day, huh? What, what do you think? Wouldn't that be great? Okay, you, we'll see you on Tuesday. And then they hang up. Now, I told you that's not going to happen, and it's probably not. But I guarantee you if it did, the first thing you would not do is text somebody and say, my boss is such a jerk. He is commanding me to take off tomorrow and rest. Thinking of, of Sabbath rest as commandment instead of gift, that, that's an obstacle. But I think maybe the bigger obstacle is a kind of general cultural confusion about Sabbath rest and what it's for. We're doing this series on spiritual and religious, which is kind of a, a response to the movement of spiritual but not religious. People who say, oh, I'm spiritual, I just don't, you know, I'm not part of the religion scene. I think when it comes to Sabbath, you have to have three categories. The first I would call quasi-spiritual. It's kind of the productivity slash creativity model. I don't know if anybody works in a place like this, but I've read about these startups in Silicon Valley where the workers sit around in beanbag chairs, you know, just brainstorming, and they ride scooters around down to the break room where they play ping pong and order frappuccinos, and the whole premise, it's brilliant, it's, it's, it's proven, is that if you don't push people harder, but you actually let them enjoy life, they'll be more productive. And there's good research to back it up. The second approach I would call the spiritual. These are the people who would say, ah, my church is gardening, cycling, walking the dog. That, that's church for me. That's, that's my religion. And they would gladly remind you that the word recreation comes from recreation. You're recreated when you take it easy, when you rest, when you play. I remember uh, being on a retreat with Barbara Brown Taylor and a bunch of ministers, and she was, at the time, still teaching undergrad. And she taught an intro to religion class for freshmen. So imagine 18-year-olds taking intro to religion. She went in one day talking about Judaism and Sabbath. But before they got to the topic, she kind of tricked them. She said, hey, by the way, how many of you are good at multitasking? Well, they figured she was, you know, older. And so she was just kind of curious. And they got into it big time. They got into a kind of contest. Like, who could do the most things at once? And somebody said, oh, I can do three, maybe four. And they, oh, come on, that's nothing. I can do six or seven. And all of this clamor, back and forth, back and forth. And when it got quiet, how many of you can do one thing at a time? And they kind of looked at her funny. And she had these little boxes, snack-sized boxes of raisins. She said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pass this around, open it up, take out one raisin, hang on to it, and just keep passing it around. Don't put it in your mouth. So they're all sitting there holding a raisin, waiting for the 20 or 30 people to get their raisin. And then she said, now I want you to just look at it. Just look at it. And now put it in your mouth, but don't, don't, don't eat it. Just let it sit there. Let it plumpen. Now, now, bite it in two, but don't chew it yet. Just let the juices flow. Now, finish eating it. And there was dead silence. This was religious moment for these young people. They had never been so still and appreciative of one raisin. There is a way in which Sabbath-keeping renews our spirits. It slows us down. It makes us appreciate things. 
then you come to the third category, the religious. And the religious category says nothing about productivity. It says nothing about chewing on a raisin and relaxing and self-care. It's not that it's opposed to those things. In fact, it says nothing about golf, which I think is a grave omission on the Sabbath. But it actually ups the game. It's not that it would deny these things. They're good. But the religious view of Sabbath keeping says there is a deeper reason. And it's from this one little word in the text that we read. For. It says for. But probably better translated from the Hebrew would be because. Here's the reason. Why should you keep the Sabbath? Because it's how God created the world. It is built into the rhythms of the world. Now, you probably, many of you know the story, Genesis 1. It's page 1 in your Bible, right? God speaks and keeps creating. God creates all kinds of things. Let there be rose bushes and clouds and sunshine and animals and people and God does that for six days, and then on the seventh, God rests. Everybody knows that, except that's not what the text says. It actually says, and on the seventh day, God finished the creation and then rested. Now, the rabbis, when they first saw this, they're like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? God's supposed to be resting, and instead, God finished his creation. So they came up with this great, playful interpretation. On the seventh day, God finished the creation and created rest. God got up on Sunday and said, let there be rest. And then God rested. And ever since, one day a week, even the animals that pulled the plows could rest, catch their breath. And the minimum wage earners at Walmart and the undocumented workers picking fruits and vegetables, everybody could rest. At least that's the way it was supposed to be. But it's not. Back in uh, about the fourth century, when Christians took Sabbath and moved it to Sunday and called it Lord's Day, before that, it was and still is for Jewish folks, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And if you have any Jewish friends, you know they may, they may not go to synagogue on Sabbath. But the one thing they do when they keep Sabbath is they do it in their homes. They always do it in their homes. That's where Sabbath is kept. And always with a meal of wine and bread and good food and always lighting two candles. And the tradition is that the two candles stand for rest and freedom. Rest so that everyone can be still. And freedom, justice, so that everyone can be still, not just those who are fortunate. Keeping Sabbath, yeah, it can make us more productive, and it can make us more creative, and it can renew our batteries. But mostly it plugs us into the rhythms of God and creation and lets us just be and breathe. It's probably not realistic that we're going to find a 24-hour period every week to keep some kind of Christian Sabbath. It's, it's done. It can be done. It's not impossible, but it's not realistic that we'll always be able to do it. So some have suggested, you know, just a miniature Sabbath here and there. 
just an afternoon where you take off early and maybe you go for a walk or you read a good book. And then you go back to work, not just to your job, but you go back to work to work for justice in the world so that everyone gets the rest. One of my favorite stories about Sabbath rest is about 100 years old. It's an, a writer in the early 20th century that not many people know of nowadays, Sherwood Anderson. He was a great writer, poet, novelist, but he didn't start out that way. He worked in a paint factory. And because he was a writer, good with words, he, he wrote flyers and letters about his product. And one day in November of 1912, he was dictating a letter to his secretary and he said, the goods about which you inquired are the finest of its kind. And then he just paused. And the secretary looked up and couldn't figure out what was going on. And after a few moments, he said, I have been wading in a long river and I am wet. And he walked out. And they found him. And he was hospitalized for exhaustion. And then he took up writing. And for him, quitting the paint factory, quitting the rat race, became the metaphor for his art. And here's the craziest part. He claims that he faked his breakdown. Because to walk away from work, people wouldn't, what do you mean you're quitting work so that you can, they couldn't take it. Isn't that something? That the person who says, I'm going to stop, has to justify their actions to the person who never stops, the one who constantly works. Some of you will recognize the name of the famed anthropologist Margaret Mead. She was once asked, what would you consider to be the surest sign of civilization among an ancient people? And of course they knew that if you found buildings, you know, pieces of building, that would be one. But, but what about before that, when people were still nomads, what would be the surest sign? And they, they were pretty sure they knew that what the answer would be, that maybe it would be making weapons out of stone, you know, like arrowheads, or perhaps digging instruments out of some kind of rock or something like that. And then she surprised them all. She said, the surest sign, in my opinion, is a healed femur bone. Because it shows that there was a people who said, we'll be still and wait for you to heal. When I, when I think about that, I am instantly back to just after that 30-year-ago mark when they invented the World Wide Web. Because I remember my kids were playing the Oregon Trail. Some of you will remember this. You start off in Independence, Missouri, and you're making your way to the Northwest, and you've got these rutted roads, and you're in your chuck wagon, and you got to figure out how to get across rivers and hunt for wild game for food, and you have to set the pace. How fast will your wagon go? And if something happens, what will you do? Well, I remember my son was at the controls, and all of us were kind of looking over his shoulder, and the kid in the game broke his leg. And of course, the first thing you have to decide is, how long will you wait for him to get well? My son, who is the gentlest of souls now, back then said, that's too bad, we're moving on, he'll have to find another way. And he left him in the middle of the prairie with a broken leg, all by himself. 
Margaret Mead said, the sign of a civilization, it's not access to the web, but in a busy world, being still long enough for everyone to heal. Which just makes me wonder, you know, what is it in our society that is broken that needs time to heal? What is it in our lives, in your life, that is broken that needs time to heal?